title is Cities, Citizenship, and the Migrant Metropolis, Life Within and Against the Spaces of the Law. Um, at the outset of his book, The Urban Revolution, Aubrey Lefebvre posits an arresting hypothesis. It says, society has been completely urbanized. The urbanization is virtual today, but will become real in the future. Now this remarkable, if underappreciated, theoretical manifesto first appeared in print in 1970, but was only published in English translation uh, in 2003. Lefebvre's inquiries into the, specific, uh, the specificity of the urban, notably, insist on outlining a theoretical problem that goes beyond describing or cataloging the positive <coughs> empirical object that may be construed of any particular city as such. Indeed, he critically distinguishes what he calls the urban, from quaint notions of the city. Urban society, as Lefebvre formulates it, is therefore not just that which transpires in cities, conventionally conceived, but rather that which encompasses an effectively global fabric of material and practical, as well as ideological and symbolic interconnections on a planetary scale, in which cities are predominant nodes where wealth and power tend to be concentrated and commanded. Thus, when Lefebvre posited the complete urbanization of the world, he anticipated by decades many of the crucial features of what today has come to be known, for better and for worse, both critically and uncritically, under the rubric of globalization. Now, this, concept this conception of an incipient and still virtual urban society was also a radically open-ended one. Elaborating upon his critical approach, furthermore, Lefebvre continues, and I'm quoting, Knowledge is not necessarily a copy or reflection, a simulacrum or simulation of an object that is already real. The object is included in the hypothesis. The hypothesis comprehends the object. Even though this object, in quotes, is located outside any empirical fact, it is not fictional. We can assume the existence of a virtual object, urban society, that is, a possible object, whose growth and development can be analyzed in relation to a process and a praxis, practical activity. Needless to say, such a hypothesis must be validated. There is, however, no shortage of arguments and proofs to sustain it. Thus, his positing of this possible object was one in which the possible is also part of the real and gives it a sense of direction and orientation, a clear path to the horizon. Lefebvre was intent to formulate hypotheses that could discern and apprehend the dynamism of vital potentialities that were still incomplete and unresolved objects, so to speak, which were as yet still in the process of becoming and not mere facts of the sort that a positivist social science could enumerate as the objective and empirical stuff of sociological inventories. Lefebvre was unapologetic in this regard, as he explains here, I'm quoting, there is no theory that neither explores a possibility nor tries to discover an orientation. Otherwise, as he put the matter rather bluntly, and here I'm quoting again, a person is content to record what he sees before his eyes. He doesn't go too far. He keeps his eyes fixed on so-called reality. He's a realist, but he doesn't think. End quote. Now, it's beyond the scope of this essay, or this talk, to comprehensively or exhaustively elaborate upon Lefebvre's remarkable hypothetical propositions regarding what he deemed to be the urban revolution. But it is instructive to begin 
uh, with his prescient insights about the ever more salient significance of urbanization as a veritably global phenomenon. And it's particularly useful to consider these insights in concert with his instructive methodological protocol for fashioning social theoretical quote-unquote objects of knowledge and inquiry grounded upon the as yet incomplete possibilities and tendencies that can be discerned in verifiable social processes and spatial practices. Now this intersection is especially pertinent when one seeks to appreciate the ever-increasing prominence of transnational migration as the practical and lived intersections at the, at the practical and lived intersections of so-called globalization and urban life. So following the FEB, I want to introduce the hypothesis of the migrant metropolis as a still incipient but nonetheless real, partially virtual, partially extant and empirically verifiable social political fact of global significance. Contemporary migrations are literally remaking cities. And this is not merely a banal fact of changing population demographics. Transnational migration is a central and constitutive dynamic in the social production and transformation of urban space. Even as these transnational urban conjunctures are very much generated within the territorial boundaries and jurisdictions of nation states and in relation to the very palpable enforcement of nation state space through immigration law and border policing, however, they radically destabilize and contradict the spatial premises and conceits of nationalism, the spatial practices of migrants and their experience therefore provide crucial standpoints of critique from which to interrogate the methodological nationalism that has commonly plagued much social scientific research. On a global scale, the differential spaces produced at the intersection of specific cities and migrant historicities provide compelling material with which to fundamentally reconceptualize the emergent formations of social and political life. In the global urban society that seems plainly more self-evident today than 40 years ago when Lefebvre hypothesized it, it's indeed the migrant metropolis that presents itself as the decisive lived spatial intersection where the contradictions of state power, quote-unquote national sovereignty, and the production and regulation of space are articulated with the global regime of capital accumulation. The relations between what otherwise present themselves as the national scale of the state and the effectively global scale of the capitalist world economy must therefore be rendered more fully apprehensible in relation to a third term. In one guise, this third term may be readily recognized in the figure of labor, indeed transnational migrant labor. Uh, but from another vantage point, this same figure must be reconceived as human life itself, living labor human productive power and creative capacity is in fact a precondition for the very possibility of human social life, however construed, with recourse to a global figure of human life as manifested through the freedom of movement of living labor. Migrant mobilities provide a key vantage from which to comprehend both the state and capital together as part of a global human geography in which the autonomy, subjectivity, and sheer vitality of human life are primary. Thus, the migrant metropolis is where both capital and territorially defined national states must confront transnational labor as the premier manifestation of the sheer restlessness of human life in its active, productive relation to the space of the planet. This elemental human freedom is ever increasingly confronted with juridical illegalization, the illegalization of mobility, 
in border enforcement regimes that make migrant labor exceptionally disposable by systematically rendering migrant life deportable. Yet the migrant metropolis has proliferated and flourished. Indeed, it is in these transnational conjunctural spaces that we may best discern and critically analyze the active processes of inclusion through exclusion that are central to producing new social orders of class, race, and citizenship. Now, there are, of course, many historically specific and socially particular manifestations of what I'm calling the migrant metropolis. There are, in fact, an ever-proliferating multiplicity of these various migrant metropolises. Um, and not any single or singular paradigmatic instance. Indeed, there, are may, there may often be multiple migrant metropolises uh, that take shape even in a single city or metropolitan region. Nonetheless, if I've posited the concept in the singular, it's because I hope to sketch the rough outlines of a theor theoretical lens through which to see cities anew and appreciate one of the more robust expressions of our global urban society, to use Lefebvre's hypothesis. What must be emphatically clarified at the outset, however, is that this concept ought not to be reduced to the trivial fact of a mere physical presence of some migrants of one sort or another in a given city. Based upon my ethnographic research conducted among Mexican migrants in Chicago during the mid-1990s and theoretically inspired by Lefebvre's conception of the production of space, for instance, I've previously posited the idea of a Mexican Chicago. Now, the point about Mexican Chicago was that it had to be apprehensible as a Chicago that could be said to meaningfully and substantively belong to Mexico, and thus could be situated within Latin America, a Chicago that, even as it remained physically located within the territorial confines of the United States, had become elusive, even irretrievable, for the U.S. nation-state. For here, indeed, was a Chicago that corresponded to the practical presence and imagined futures of countless communities throughout Mexico from which migrants originated and continued in material and practical as well as symbolic ways to sustain an ensemble of social relations that exceeded or even transcended the nation-state border. The border that constitutes the premier division between the nation-state spaces of the US and Mexico otherwise supplied the decisive and defining fault line across which and through which these transnational migrant trajectories and projects were actualized and achieved their, and achieved their socio-political and spatialized particularity. Yes, and yet, I contended, here was a Mexican Chicago, ostensibly confined within the boundaries of the U.S. nation-state, but also a site for their production. And here, by emphasizing the production of these boundaries, which are always also limits, I proposed that Chicago, likewise, became a site for their contingency. Migrants, I suggested, were, pro were producing a conjunctural space with transformative repercussions in all directions. And some aspect of Chicago itself had thereby become radically disarticulated from the assimilatory powers of US nationalism and the containments of its presumably sacrosanct and inviolable space. But positing a Chicago that corresponds socio-spatially to Latin America, the force of my intervention was directed specifically against the epistemological stability of the US nation state as a presupposition Mexican Chicago served to signify a permanent disruption of the space of the U.S. nation-state. However, this did not make Mexican Chicago easily recuperable for the Mexican nation-state, much as various projects of the Mexican state and its dominant political parties sought to reincorporate its so-called diaspora. Uh, rather than an outpost or mere extension of the Mexican nation-state, 
The Mexicanness in the in this other Chicago, this migrant <coughs> metropolis, was itself something new that emerged only from the variable encounter and engagement of Mexican origin labor migrants with the racialized social and uh, social order and political economy of the United States. The migrant metropolis then was meant to signal the vital possibility of something new, a radically differential social formation. Mexican Chicago as a migrant metropolis was also posited, therefore, as a standpoint of critique. Now, in light of Lefebvre's discussion of the virtual global urban society, we may say of Mexican Chicago that it was formulated indeed as a peculiar sort of epistemologi uh, epistemological object included in the very same hypothesis that sought to comprehend it, even though this virtual object or place can be said to be located outside any empirical fact, it was and is not at all a fiction. Uh, no mere confabulation of my own theoretical imagination. I invited my readers to conceive with me of the existence of an eminently social space, an incipient and possible object comprised of innumerable actual places, but also activated contingently as the space produced at the countless ephemeral sites of particular social relations. Now, in this sense, Mexican Chicago was not a place in any positivist sense, even in spite of the existence of several virtually homogeneous segregated Mexican neighborhoods and suburbs. Instead, Mexican Chicago was produced more negatively than positively, which is to say it emerged relationally. Uh, its growth and development could be analyzed in relation to various social processes and spatial practices deeply grounded in the practical productive activity and creative energies of real people immersed in a complex ensemble of social relations, simultaneously located within the metropolitan region of Chicago and also operating transnationally in ever-proliferating circuits that were oriented around otherwise seemingly remote locales across much of the geography <coughs> of Mexico. With recourse to the sorts of evidence that could be produced through ethnographic techniques as well as no shortage of conceptual arguments, I sought to validate and sustain this hypothesis of this distinctly Mexican Chicago. It was and continues to be a real space, but it was and is nonetheless not reducible to any particular place, uh, not, a not a delimited immigrant ghetto, so to speak, not an ethnic enclave, not a putative village in the city, uh, not some sort of quasi-discrete virtual island within the confines of a larger urban space that otherwise could be assumed to be thoroughly encompassing it and containing it. Uh, instead of an enclosure, the proposition of a Mexican Chicago signified a radical and disruptive opening. And upon the more prosaically known and conventionally knowable space of the city, it superimposed another other metropolis. Now, as will be apparent to anyone acquainted with the intellectual history of urban sociology, particularly in the United States, my original impetus in formulating the idea of a Mexican Chicago was very much a concern with producing a critique of the legacies of what's known as the Chicago School. Uh, the Chicago School of Sociology refers to the effectively hegemonic grip of the University of Chicago Department of Sociology over the intellectual formation and academic institutionalization of sociology in the United States during the greater part of the 20th century. A very significant portion of the scholarly output of the Chicago School was preoccupied with specifically urban questions. Um, and when I initiated my project on Mexican Chicago, not only was I conducting my research under the auspices of that same institution, the University of Chicago, I was also doing it in the same urban setting, Chicago itself, which the Chicago School had explicitly designated their premier social laboratory. 
furthermore, although I was working in a different, albeit aligned academic discipline, social and cultural anthropology, the dominance of the Chicago School's legacy, even for work in urban anthropology, remained entrenched. Not least because those early Chicago sociologists had understood their task to be precisely the deployment of the ethnographic techniques more generally associated with, uh, as they put it, the studies that anthropologists have made of the cultures of primitive peoples. Um, that was explicit in their programmatic sort of vision. Um, now, as Michael Burroway notes, it's easy from today's vantage point, therefore, to forget that in the 1920s and 30s, the science of sociology was almost coterminous with ethnography. Little surprise, then, that urban sociology came to imagine the city as, quotes, uh, a complex of distinct social worlds which touch but never completely penetrate, each with its own scheme of life. Indeed, many of its elementary weaknesses were exactly the problems that urban sociology had uncritically adopted in the first instance when it imported wholesale the methodological protocols of a cultural anthropology preoccupied with the study of presumably discrete peoples with putatively essential cultures in ostensibly bounded places. Having transposed the ethnographic methods of primitivist cultural anthropology to the modern urban US context, the Chicago School had effectively sealed the fate of future work by most anthropologists who would later turn their scrutiny to cities and even repatriate their studies to the United States or other similarly less exotic places. Thus, urban anthropology commonly involved something like a traditionally conceived island or village ethnography that simply happened to be conducted in an urban setting where the city was the locus rather than the focus, to use Ulf Hanertz's phrase. In contrast, I sought to elaborate a critical approach that could aspire to systematically foreclose as much as possible the shortcomings that I discerned in those canonical works of urban ethnography. Uh, whatever it was, Mexican Chicago in my formulation would not be parochialized as a mythic place of essentialized and homogeneous culture in an inevitably naturalized and self-contained relation uh, to its bounded spatial location, merely situated in the quote-unquote context of the wider city, the broader US social formation and modernity in general. Some, sometimes empirically rich, but commonly impoverished theoretically, the Chicago School's urban sociology also explicitly generated a series of bland generalizations about so-called universal laws of human interaction, the putative natural history of social life and institutions, and urban life in particular as a kind of ecology, or the city as the natural habitat of civilized man. As Burroway has argued in this regard, the search for trans-historical laws obscured real history. And the natural history became the buzzword that was, in fact, a history out of context. Indeed, Chicago school figureheads, Robert Park and Ernest Burgess, made the claim explicit that what distinguished sociology from history was precisely the act of treating events out of their historical setting. That is to say, out of their time and space relations in order to compare them and classify them. That's a quote. Um, hence, with regard to actual migrants, whatever their heterogeneous socio-historical specificities, the Chicago School refashioned them as always already known transitional intermediaries between the presumptive parochialism or one or of one or another old country, so to speak, some folk culture, and the putative cosmopolitanism of a pronouncedly urban modernity that was consistently and uncritically equated with the particularity of life in cities in the United States. Their particularities became reducible, and, uh, reducible to and subsumed by 
the presumably singular immigrant experience and a universal assimilation process. Uh, more generally, the Chicago School's pseudo-ecological conceptual framework served above all to naturalize the spatial configurations of social inequality <coughs> that are the hallmark of capitalist urbanism. Furthermore, the decontextualization that came with an increasingly restricted notion of closed ethnographies of self-contained urban institutions enhanced the portability of this sort of sociological empiricism. The city, or the urban, more broadly conceived, thereby tended to be reduced to an abstract container that accumulates naturalized sociocultural or institutional processes, indeed a mere context, background noise, against which more familiar holistic cultural units could be put in their place and isolated for ethnographic objectification. Now, my, my proposition of a Mexican Chicago was intended to suggest precisely not the old-fashioned anthropological conceit about the essential durability and reproducibility of culture, in this case that of Mexicans, in some delimited spatial locations situated within the, large, the larger, presumably impervious context of the city as a kind of assimilation machine. Uh, likewise, in my, form, my formulation was intended to foreclose a culturalist transnational perspective that could now simply propose, however improbably, uh, the notion of a remote village that had somehow stretched itself, duplicating itself um, in a faraway city. Instead, Mexican migration to Chicago could be understood to partake of an active reworking and reproduction of social space itself. As a result, Chicago and Mexico have come to be inextricably implicated into one another. As urban space, the city itself is continually, continuously produced and reconfigured through the contradictions of struggles in which migrants are centrally implicated. Thus, the urban fabric is one in which migrant communities themselves can be constituted not in isolation, but indeed only in the midst of social relations and conflict. Um, space is investment. The production of space has nothing incidental about it, argues Lefebvre. It's a matter of life and death. Ironically, perhaps the greatest achievement of the urban ethnography generated under the tutelage of the Chicago School of Sociology was a study that significantly departed from uh, its most fundamentally <coughs> defining theoretical coordinates. And here I refer to Black Metropolis uh, by St. Clair Drake and Horace Caton. Indeed, Drake and Caton's landmark ethnography of Bronzeville, the segregated African-American ghetto on Chicago's south side, is a work whose title is palpably pertinent to the title of this essay, uh, of this paper. For as I will try to elucidate further, one cannot adequately think about the meaning of the migrant metropolis, particularly in the British or other European contexts, without an appreciation of it also as a black metropolis. Now here, of course, I'm not referring to any supposedly objective racial blackness uh, that might be attributed to people of African descent in particular, but rather to the more expansive and capacious understanding of blackness as a racialized category, that, encom that encompasses the whole spectrum of social identities produced as specifically not white. Whereas the Chicago School tended to naturalize urban social inequalities as effectively inevitable features of a larger progressive and assimilatory process of urban ecological growth, adjustment, and accommodation, the two African-American authors of Black Metropolis candidly assessed the stark realities of black American poverty and disaffection in terms of systemic and pervasive racial discrimination and oppression. They produced their conception of the black metropolis as, quote, a unique and distinctive city within a city, not as 
a natural and sui generis adaptation of newcomers to the urban environment, but rather as the consequence of and response to unrelenting and unforgiving segregation. Following W.E.B. Du Bois's proposition that the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line, Drake and Caton were perfectly frank about how, and here I quote, the preeminence of the white Western European powers has been based upon the 400-year uh, the 400-year-old political and economic subordination of the colored peoples of Asia and Africa. The color line in America is merely a specialized variant of the worldwide problem." End quote. Thus, in contrast to Gunnar Myrtle's contemporaneous, decidedly quaint formulation of an American dilemma, the distinctive and seemingly parochial American racial problem at the core of black metropolis was, in fact, a particular localized instance of a global fact of white supremacy. So it had been consciously formulated at the theoretical level by Du Bois, and so also was it then deliberately presented as the framework for a comprehensive sociological study at the empirical level by Drake and Caton. In the pressing concluding lines of their last chapter, Drake and Caton declared, and I quote, the problems that arise on, Bronville, on Bronzeville's 47th Street and circle the globe. A blow struck for freedom in Bronzeville finds its echo in Chongqing and Moscow, in Paris and Senegal. Notably, then, in Drake and Caton's account, the color line was not static. As they explained, it bends and buckles and sometimes breaks, resulting in a permanent tension, constant struggle, and sometimes violence. That dynamism surrounding the struggle over white supremacy as a constitutive global fact of the modern world was a significant explanatory feature of their specific account of the continuing migration of African-American newcomers from the US South to Chicago's black metropolis. For present purposes, it's remarkable that even in this context of the urban social and political segregation of racially subordinate citizens, the black metropolis was always already also a migrant metropolis. But in spite of possible, and according to the Chicago School predictable, analogies with the experiences of European origin, foreign-born immigrants who eventually uh, came to be racialized as white, Drake and Caton underscored precisely the role of the color line in ensuring that integration and assimilation for black Americans remained ever incomplete, even in spite of their ostensible US citizenship. Now here, it's undeniable that there are historical and social specificities to the distinct forms of ghettoization and the particular dynamics of the white supremacist racial segregation that have transpired in the US context. Louis Quacon, has very appropriately, I think, underscored these differences between African-American ghettoization and hyper-ghettoization, in his phrase, and the more recent uh, manifestations of contemporary poverty and racial marginality in European contexts. Nonetheless, it is indeed fruitful to explore some of the parallels theoretically, especially in light of Drake and Caton's explicit commitment to a more global frame of analysis in the account of the racial subordination that could be investigated through the black metropolis. Richard Wright, the foremost African-American novelist, novelist at the time, who had spent some of the most formative years of his own life in the same Chicago neighborhoods depicted in the Drake and Caton study, and had set his most important literary works there as well, wrote the original introduction to black metropolis. In the opening lines, Wright unabashedly acknowledged that he, along with the authors of the study, felt, and I quote, personally identified with the material in the book. In short, it mattered immensely that here was a sociology of urban racial subjugation produced by people who had experienced it personally, intimately, directly. Wright continued, and I quote, 
In writing this definitive study of Negro urbanization, the authors were conscious of the overall American problem, and they had to assume that white Americans know little or nothing of the Negro, that a mere statement of his problem would go against the grain of American thought and feeling, that had to assume that Negro personality, Negro conditions of life, Negro feelings, and the ardent and oftentimes bitter nature of Negro aspirations constituted an alien realm for white Americans were unreal to them." End quote. Thus, what appears at first glance to be more a more narrowly African-American socio-historical specificity of the black metropolis, nevertheless, raises a more general problem for theoretical reflection, that of a space within the city that assumes the character of an alien realm. Now here, it's instructive to leap forward to more contemporary discourses concerning the urban question, specifically in Europe. Consider, for example, a brief and casual exchange I had in 2010 with an otherwise pleasant and liberal-minded Dutch acquaintance, a relatively educated man, a schoolteacher by profession, and an artist by vocation. As we chatted in his parlor amidst the general commotion generated by our two children playing happily nearby, he mentioned the existence in the Netherlands of what he matter-of-factly uh, matter called white schools and black schools. <coughs> I asked him what he was referring to exactly. After all, in European contexts, I've been generally inclined to expect that the discourses of race tend to be less brazen and crude than those with which I've been accustomed all my life in the United States. But yes, such bluntly racialized categories of distinction, I discovered, are the organizing discursive frameworks through which many ordinary people have come to understand the socially consequential choices confronting them with respect to which schools they will select for their children's education white schools or black schools. What followed, however, was still more revealing. This otherwise broad-minded man then remarked, perhaps you've been to the west part of Amsterdam. When you go there, it's really like you're in Istanbul. It isn't the, it, it, it isn't the Netherlands there. You feel like it's Turkey. In fact, it is Turkey. Now, what strikes me as especially humorous in this, in, in this in retrospect, is that on the one occasion when I did visit the west side of Amsterdam, my five-year-old daughter was quite adamant about her own sense that it really reminded her of Chicago. Although I did not spend a very long time in the Netherlands, I was living there for only six months, and make no pretenses of having conducted formal in-depth research there. And, um, and very salient socio political discrepancies between the African-American ghetto and this spectral foreignization or estrangement of the European city, notwithstanding, this casual comment may be taken to signal a kind of discursive and conceptual crystallization of the larger social processes very much at stake in my analysis of the multifarious forms of alienation at stake in the migrant metropolis. Now this becomes still more stark, however, when it's situated within the orbit of rather more articulate and elaborated discourses operating at what may be taken to be some of the, to, by some, to represent the highest level of European thought. Let us consider, for instance, the following quote. Social conditions of the former third world are becoming commonplace in the urban centers of the first world. These trends are crystallizing in the phenomenon of a new underclass. An underclass produces social tensions that discharge in aimless, self-destructive revolts, that can only be controlled by repressive means. In addition, social destitution and physical immiseration cannot be locally contained. The poison of the ghettos infects the infrastructure of the inner cities. 
even whole regions, and penetrates the pores of society as a whole. This leads finally to a moral erosion of the society. Destitution, and that's the end of the quote. Destitution, immiseration, moral erosion, the infectious poison of the ghettos, such was the cataclysmic gloom that none other than Jorgen Habermas cast upon the historical moment in the early 1990s when nothing less than a new Europe seemed to be incipient. And this in a collection of essays published under the title, The Inclusion of the Other. Now, I've written at greater length about these particular passages in Habermas's work, so I won't belabor them here. Nonetheless, the source of this corrosive, devastating contagion was purported to be precisely a nefarious underclass, apparently sequestered in urban ghettos, reinventing the so-called third world in the inner cities of urbane and enlightened Europe. In spite of its third-worldly foreignness, however, this putative underclass is scarcely identified in this apparently erudite scholarly discourse by its more conventional or prosaic name, migration. And much less is it ever recognized candidly as a question, uh, as concerning a question of race. Now, to paraphrase, to paraphrase Richard Wright's reflections on black metropolis, in any effort to write the prospective analysis of transnational migrant urbanization, particularly in the UK and Europe, we must recall to mind the overall post-colonial problem and assume that white Europeans, much like whites in the United States regarding racialized so-called minorities, both old and new, know little or nothing of the migrants in question, that a mere statement of their problems would go dramatically against the grain of dominant thought and feeling, and that migrants' actual conditions of life, perspectives, and the ardent and oftentimes bitter nature of their aspirations constitute an alien realm for them, for whites, Europeans, and U.S. Americans alike. Um, the migrant metropolis is indeed an alien metropolis, one subjected to a kind of a, a systemic kind of alienation, one of pronounced exploitation and protracted estrangement for the migrants themselves. But the migrant metropolis likewise becomes a screen for the phantasmatic projection of a beleaguered or even besieged sense of white nativist prerogative now alienated from its own supposed birthright entitlements. Now, against the onslaught of a precisely nativist politics, of identity that serves to reaffirm and aggressively reassert the priority of so-called natives on no other grounds than their natal identity and presumptive entitlement to the nation. The migrant metropolis is plainly a black metropolis, and contemporary debates over migration are deeply racialized, even when they are conducted in the ostensibly race-neutral race language of the politics of citizenship. Furthermore, it's the figure of the urban that signals a whole complex discursive terrain and a still more convoluted subterranean realm of more murky motivations, impulses, and anxieties, constituted materially and practically by the intersections of global capital, transnational migrant labor, territorially defined national state formations, and their unequal politics of citizenship and entitlement, and the post-colonial dynamics of racialized inequalities. While all of these forces are configured at a global level, it's the level of the nation-state that presents itself as decidedly and decisively more locally delimited, delimited, and which brings to bear upon the migrant metropolis the whole panoply of its tactics of immigration law enforcement and its techniques of border policing. Still, the migrant metropolis supplies us with a critical lens through which to see our cities as part of what Lefebvre anticipated as an effectively global urban society. Similarly, the migrant metropolis compels us to reassess our racial conflicts 
in terms of what Du Bois and subsequent African-American thinkers recognized to be a veritably global color line. In, a, in this critical light, the nativism and nationalism that plague our contemporary politics of immigration and citizenship must reckon with a global politics of transnational mobility. As the veritable source of all value, it's not unreasonable to say that labor power is the premier commodity in the global circuitry of capitalist exchange. As capital has made and relentlessly remade the world in its own image, and according to its chaotic requirements, bursting asunder every apparent barrier in the creation of an ever more unobstructed global arena for profit-making and the continuous reconsolidation of a global division of labor, moreover, necessarily and inevitably, uh, and arguably above and beyond any other commodity, there has also been a concomitant escalation in the mobility of labor power. As with the mobility of capital itself, which exudes a pronounced indifference toward the particular forms of the labor process where it invests in favor of a maximization of surplus value, and is in this sense exceedingly versatile, so also with, human, with the human mobility of labor, migrant labor mobility is a supreme instance of flexibility, compelled to regard the particular content of one or another type of work with relative indifference, and to render, render up its labor power wherever it may be required. The inclination to surmount any legal or other extra-economic impediments to its freedom of movement is yet another aspect of this versatility. But the global movement of homogenized, abstract labor is finally embodied in the restless life and death of labor in a rather more concrete form, which is to say actual migrant working men and women. Capital can never extract from labor the abstract, eminently social substance that is value, except with recourse to the abstraction of labor power, which, however, can only be derived from the palpable vital energies of living labor. As an operative, indeed decisive category of capital accumulation, labor power never ceases to pertain to real flesh and blood working people. The accelerated mobility of labor power, therefore, is inseparable from the migration of actual human beings. In the mass exodus of the Irish fleeing the potato famine of 1846, Karl Marx recognized what he characterized as a systematic process that not only entailed a new way of spiriting a poor people thousands of miles away from the scene of its misery, and here I'm quoting, but also served, in effect, as one of the most lucrative branches of Ireland's export trade, exporting the labor power of its surplus population while also mobilizing the migrants themselves as a source of remittances that not only subsidized those left behind but further fueled migration by financing the travel costs of subsequent generations of migrants. From the, from the opposite vantage point of the United States, Marx discerned with respect to Irish labor migration a concomitant importation, the importation of paupers, as he put it. Depicting Ireland's colonial condition in terms of, quotes, a government maintained only by bayonets and by a state of siege, sometimes open and sometimes disguised, Marx also discerned how the forced migration of the poor Irishmen into the industrial cities of England had enabled the capitalist class to cultivate two hostile camps, defined by the profound antagonism between the Irish proletariat and the English proletariat, whereby, quote, again, the average English worker hates the Irish worker and regards him somewhat like the poor whites of the southern states of North America regard their black slaves, end quote. 
Notably then, the homogenized abstraction of labor power can be generated only under the aegis of the social production of real heterogeneity and inequality, such as that which <coughs> Du Bois called the problem of the color line, or what part of the has designated the rule of colonial difference, as well as what Carol Pateman identifies as the sexual contract. It's in the transnational conjunctural spaces which I'm designating the migrant metropolis that we may best discern and critically analyze the active processes of inclusion through exclusion that are central to producing new social orders of class, race, and citizenship. And this is particularly pertinent as the gendered, procreative, reproductive, and affective labor at stake in the reproduction of migrant labor power comes to be equated with the production of burgeoning populations of disproportionately impoverished and racially subordinate so-called minority groups, presumptively comprised of delinquent or abject citizens, or in some contexts, native-born second-generation non-citizens, who are widely despised as a ghetto-dwelling underclass and disparaged as a corrosive repository of social pathology and menacing criminality. In the United States, historically, the figure of the so-called illegal alien as heterosexual male sojourner was always gendered as male, and the effectiveness of his exploitation relied upon the maintenance of relatively low reproduction costs due to the prearranged separation of migrant working men from the women and children who stayed behind in the countries of origin. By the end of the 20th century, however, the dominant politics of immigration in the United States had come to be obsessively articulated as a raciological anxiety over changing demography and the prospect of proliferating new racial minorities through the increasing equation of undocumented migrant women with permanent family settlement. Phyllis Chalk poignantly identifies the pervasive presumption that a natural relationship between babies and mothers blurs lines of rights and responsibilities mapped by the state between two categories of people, citizen and alien, such that undocumented women's fertility is understood to multiply the risk to the nation. Thus, the incorrigibility of so-called illegal aliens for nationalist projects of integration and assimilation finally have come in recent years to refashion the question of migrant settlement with a palpable nativist vengeance. Notably in the United States, legal arguments to disenfranchise the US-born children of, to denaturalize, as it were, uh, the US-born children of undocumented migrants of their birthright citizenship have been translated into concerted political campaigns. The fertility of so-called illegal migrant women has thus been increasingly conscripted to represent the premier threat of impoverished and racially subjugated denizens who inevitably can only multiply and reproduce their marginalized condition in a permanently disaffected and criminally inclined <coughs> citizen or would-be citizen so-called underclass. Indeed, part of the dramatic, unprecedented escalation in deportations from the US since 1996 can be explained precisely in terms of the targeted policing dedicated to removing so-called criminal aliens, of whom the premier example are the US-raised but still undocumented children of undocumented migrants who've become ensnared in Latino street gangs. Furthermore, this menace is only further amplified to the extent that it may be conjoined with the loathsome figure 
of the sexual autonomy of the single unwed mother, that standard fixture of ghetto pathology. It's precisely within the differential space of the migrant metropolis, therefore, that migrant illegalization may thus be seen as pivotal in the wider nexus conjoining criminalization and citizenship. Now, it's astonishing, <coughs> David Harvey reflects, to note how much of conventional social theory as well as political practice was corralled within the unexamined territorial frame of the nation state. Methodological nationalism and its <coughs> attendant epistemological problems are especially pertinent to migration studies. Indeed, as uh, Willem Spinkel has argued, the very notion of integration, as constantly evoked in immigration discourse, operates more generally as a decisive and routine short circuit through which a territorially defined so-called national society may be produced and stabilized as a delimited object with determinate boundaries demarcating its putative inside from its constitutive outside. These problems are likewise particularly relevant for the study of migrant urbanism. The proposition of the migrant metropolis that I've been outlining here aims precisely to disrupt the methodological complacencies by which cities, dynamically inserted within global circuits of capital and labor, come to be epistemologically recuperated and secured for the state's national project. The very processes of state formation and their compulsive nationalization must be seen as part of what is in fact generated through the social struggles surrounding transnational human mobility and the political conflicts of migration, whereby the figures of, quote, immigration and immigrants are produced as objects of a given state's nationalism. Of course, these struggles operate nonetheless within the fetishized, apparently fixed and durable parameters of already <coughs> constituted reified state formations and their regimes of legality and illegality. All migrations, after all, are composed as historically specific products of the intersections of particular formations of human <coughs> mobility, migratory movements, with the distinct political and legislative histories of particular states and their consequent legal economies of meaning and differentiation. Part of what's at stake in these struggles, however, is no less than the state itself as the subordination of deportable migrant labor is a decisive and perennial task in the expressly political mediation by territorially defined so-called national states of the global capital labor relation. Through their everyday struggles and the productions of the migrant metropolis as a space of difference, however, transnational migrants actively participate in the ongoing composition and recomposition of the tempos and tenor of the state's national politics of immigration What's at stake here is not simply the analysis of sociopolitical processes within the national territory of a given state as if they could be apprehensible as effectively contained within a durable, presumptively national receptacle known as society, but rather the critical theorization of a transnational social relation of labor and capital and the global politics of migrant mobility as constitutive of the contemporary reconfiguration of nation states as such, and thus also as constitutive of citizenship itself. The critical analysis of the migrant metropolis then by resituating our understandings of the intersections of migration and urbanization as sociopolitical facts of global scope can illuminate a more encompassing interrogation of the historical specificity in the present of contemporary state formations of the particular manifestations of their politics of immigration and citizenship, of nationalism and nativism, and the full gamut of their nationalist compulsions. Like Mexican Chicago, the migrant metropolis more generally must be apprehensible as a kind of transnational conjuncture 
a differential space, fundamentally elusive and perhaps ultimately irretrievable for any nationalism. Thank you.